0: We will be in 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're, we're continuing our series entitled, A Kingdom in Search of a King. You know, last week, um, Chuck covered chapters 9 through 10, where Saul was anointed a king. And I want to correct Chuck on something he said last week, that he said that we might be picking on him for giving him chapter 9 and 10, 53 verses. There's no might. We definitely are, Right. That's what 20 years of pulpit experience gets you. You get the hard text, right? It's like in grade school when they start numbering you off one, two, one, two, and you realize your buddy's a two and you're going to be a one and you kind of scoot over. That might have happened for that text, right? So here we are. Chapter 11, 15, simple verses. Very thankful. I'm joking, I did not do that, but I was lucky that I did not get 53 verses in a week. So coming, coming, coming off of chapter 10, there's a what many theologians call a hinge verse at the end of chapter 10 that really sets up the development of the next story into chapter 11. At the end, in chapters 9 and 10, Saul is anointed king by Samuel. At the end of chapter 10, it says this, But some worthless fellow said, How can this man save us? He's speaking of Saul, who they just commissioned as king. And they despised him and brought him no present. So this verse in the end of chapter 10 takes us today to where we are in chapter 11. Can Saul save his people from their enemy? Is he the really the king that God has ordained for God's people? Let's lift hanging at the end of chapter 10. So now we turn to chapter 11 to see if that hanging question is answered. So let's go ahead and turn to chapter 11. I' looking at the entire chapter here. This is God's word. Then Nahash the Am- Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh- Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, "Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you." But Nahash, the Ammonite, said to them, "On this condition, I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes." and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept out loud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bazek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow... By the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told them, told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. Next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Verse 12. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death for this day. For today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we come before you now. Acknowledging that you are our Savior. You are the one that saves us today. Each and every day of our lives. And Father, as we come before this, your word, we do pray that our hearts would be opened. That our minds would be attentive. Lord, that we would be changed. By your word. Father, we need you each day. Father, we pray that you be here with us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So recently... Uh, I have been watching. Allison and I have been watching a show called A uh, SEAL Team. It's not a show, but probably uh, everyone should watch. But they're in this show. There, it traces the line, the story of a particular Navy SEAL team as they go around the world on operations. And in one episode, the team is tasked with parachuting into a very war-torn part of the country that they're not supposed to be in. They're going in. They're supposed to leave no trace behind. And they have particular instructions that they are to release their chute at a certain elevation so that they fall on the right side of this mountain instead of the left side. And the left side is where the enemy's camp is, and the right side is safety. As they jump out of the plane, you get to hear the comms and speaking back and forth. And one of the men, you just hear him, "My he, something's wrong with his parachute, right? And it's Hollywood, right, so it's really dramatic, and you don't know what for five minutes what happens. But what you find out is that his secondary chute does release, and it saves him, but he lands on enemy, in enemy, enemy territory. So the entire episode is really these two stories. One of the team trying to find their man, going through mile after mile after mile of rough desert terrain, And of this other man by himself, fighting off man after man after man of the enemy. It's interesting, the man who is by himself actually throughout this show has been a devout Christian. And he's struggling with his faith. He's going through a time of trial in his faith. So as he is a a lone soldier, he's making his way through this terrain. He's running up a mountain towards the end of the episode. And he uses his last round in his gun and realizes this is the end. He gets on his knees, and for the first time in probably like 10 episodes, he prays. This is what he prays. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall hide in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. I will say to my Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress. My God in him I will trust. It's his last breath, he thinks, and he turns to God. I need you. I need your saving. Hollywood, right? So he doesn't end there. He closes his prayer. His team storms over the mountain and says, Ray, get down and they gets rid of the enemy and he is saved and he holds his buddy and says, I thought I was going to die. And his last words were turning to the Lord. In the West, you and I, maybe some of you are more familiar with this scenario that I just talked about than I am, but we can get very comfortable in our lives. and you know, We have Good jobs, nice houses, nice family, good friends, great Mexican food, right? But a lot of good and easy things here. But the reality is that in our spiritual life, we are much more like this lone soldier in enemy, enemy territory than we like to believe. That each and every one of us is in need of saving like he was. The Bible is pretty clear that each one of us are born into sin, and sin does two things. It condemns us before God and also enslaves us to a life of sin. The Bible is also clear that it is only God himself who can save us. It is only God who can storm over the mountain and save us from our sin. So the big idea today is very simple. The Lord is our salvation. There's a reason we sing that song today. I want it in your mind. The Lord is our salvation. We're going to look at this narrative. You know, often when you look at a narrative in the the Old Testament specifically, you can break it down in many different ways. And sometimes this works, but we're looking at this in the same way that you might break down narrative you learned in English class, right? So it's like a setting initially in this rising action, climax, and then resolution. That's exactly how this text is laid out. So this is what we're looking at today. First, the threat of the enemy is kind of the setting The rise of the king in verses 5 through 10 is the rising action. And then the defeat of the enemy is verse 11. That's the climax. And then the renewal of the kingship is verses 12 through 15, and that's the resolution. Okay, so let's start. uh, The threat of the enemy, this is verse 1, is where we will start. Verse 1 says this. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make ye treaty with us, and we will serve you. So the chapter begins with the author explaining the situation that this man, Nahash of the Ammonites, is attacking Jabesh, an Israelite town of Benjamin. And Jabesh was a fortified town about 20 miles south of the Sea of Galilee. Surprising to hear that it's the Ammonites. You know, who have we heard about so far in First Samuel? It's the Philistines, right? The Ammonites here are coming from the east where the Philistines have come from the west. But nonetheless, we're seeing that God's people again are being attacked. At the tail end of Chuck's sermon last week, he talked about this play on words that we see here. It's really important That we see this because the leader's name of the Ammonites is Nahash or in Hebrew it would be Nahash with a really hard H. Nahash is his name. If you go to the dictionary, the normal Hebrew dictionary, the biblical one, you see this word. The first translation that you get is serpent. The second translation is this guy's name. From 1 Samuel chapter 11. So the original author would have seen that. We know that word. That's serpent that he's talking about. That is who is attacking God's people. The serpent is God's enemy. That's what we would have seen. There is repetition throughout the Bible. The serpent, Nahash, is attacking God's people. So this town, Jabesh, is being attacked. And we see later in the text that Jabesh is being attacked while Saul has not really begun his kingly action. He hasn't established a formal government for his people, and yet God's people are under attack. So the people plead with Nahash. Make a treaty with us, please. It goes on in verse 2. This is verses 2 through 4. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all of your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. It's ridiculous terms, right? I'm just like you cannot laugh the first time you read it. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept. Okay, so they said, Let us make a treaty with you. And Nahash comes back and says, Okay. Here are my terms. Allow me to gouge out all of the men's right eyes. The text tells us that he wants to bring disgrace upon God's people. But more than that, I want us to know this fact, is that in battle, if a soldier were to go into battle, he's holding his shield with his left hand. And the shield covers the majority of his body, and it goes up right here and covers his left eye. So to gouge out a right man's eye is to make him defenseless in battle. One theologian says this, for God's people, this treaty meant never-ending subservience, for it made most men unfit for military service. The left eye was normally covered by the shield in battle. He with the right eye gone, well, you can't fight what you can't sight. But Nahash was primarily interested in producing, he was not primarily interested in producing disabled veterans. His delight was in heaping disgrace upon Israel. And it was a thrill for him to slowly turn the screws of humiliation upon Israel. This is a real threat. So they say, let us, let us at least have some time to find someone that will save us. And it's interesting that he responds in the way that he does. Oh, yeah, you're no threat to me. You can have seven days. Sure, go try to find someone that will save you. Remember the hinge text in the end of, verse, in end of chapter 10, where the worthless fellow asks the questions, can this man save us? Maybe this is the same question that's being asked can we find someone to save us will Saul come to save his people okay let's go on the rise of the king this is verses 5 through 10 we'll start with verses 5 and 6 now behold Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said what is wrong with the people that they are weeping so they told him the news of the men of Jabesh And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words. And his anger was greatly kindled. So the people are sent out to find someone that will save them. And they get to Saul. And where is he? He's in the field behind the oxen. This is what we say he probably has not started his kingly action because he's outside farming still at the height of weeping and the news of the oppression of god's people leads to what it leads to the spirit of god coming upon this man bringing resolve to saul to act he sees the oppression and it the spirit moves him to act we see this idea of oppression of god's people and the spirit rushing in in several places in the bible with Moses, we think about it that God's people have been oppressed, that they have been made slaves in Egypt. And it leads to God's power sweeping in to confront and deliver God's people from slavery, from oppression. Psalm 103, verse 6 says, The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. We have a God of justice who frees his people from oppression. But the focus here is not on Saul's uprising. You could take this text and spin it a lot of ways, right? You could say, Look at this, look at this man. He's a good king. He stood up and said, I'm gonna fight for my people. And it's actually really good. But the focus is not that. The focus is actually the power behind the man standing up. The focus is not Saul's uprising, but the power behind the ordained king. In a commentary, I wanted to show you this. We talk about chiastic structures a lot. And I'm not an English guy, so this is just what I'm reading and explaining to you, right? But chiasms essentially do this. They kind of make an arrow with the text. And at the point of the arrow is generally the focus of the text. What what do we see in verse 6? That is the point. That is the point of the arrow. That is the center of the text. That is the primary reason why God's people are saved because the Spirit rushes upon God's king, Saul himself. The Spirit's movement is at the dead center of the text. It highlights its centrality. What is happening here is that Saul's heart was moved in anger towards the opposition because of the Spirit in verse 6. It goes on in verse 7. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messenger, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be to his oxen. And the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bazek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah were 30,000. Many of you have been to my house. You know how it's set up. You walk in the front door. There's a living room. My room is on the left, and my girl's room, kind of back right, back here. There's a hallway that goes to all my girl's rooms back there, okay? Sometimes I'll be in my room. I'll be cooking dinner or something, and I hear very unpleasant sounds from that side of the house. You understand what happens, right, with three sisters, okay? So something is going on back there that is not good. Somebody's fighting with someone. Someone has done something that is not pleasant, Somebody needs to intervene. So dad is there, right? I walk to the front of the hallway, and I say, girls, to the couch now. They make their way out of their rooms. This is one moment in fatherhood that I'm like, okay, I've got this under control now, right? They walk to the couch, and they understand something's going on that's serious, right? That we need to talk. Daddy needs to talk. We're in trouble, right? This is what he does here, right? Right? He cuts up an oxen. He sends it out to the people and say, you come now. This is serious. Actually, he says, you must come to battle with me, not just sit on the couch. You need to come to battle with me or your oxen will be like this. And the dread of the Lord comes upon the people. Notice the mention of not just Saul here that they are falling, but it says Samuel and Saul showing that this is not just a battle of this one king. But this is a battle of the Lord that Saul himself is falling under the prophet's authority. That Saul's actions are led by the Spirit which leads 300,000 people of Israel and 30,000 from Judah to follow him into battle. Verse 9 comes, and they hear the words that they have been longing to hear. Tomorrow... By the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. They've been wanting words of relief from their king. Will there be someone to save us from verse 10, from chapter 10? Can Saul save us here in verse verse 9? You shall have salvation. And this statement brings joy throughout the land. You know, many theologians call this narrative a salvation narrative. It's all about God saving his people. A threat comes to God's people. They panic. Say, make a treaty with us, please. They consider. Gouge out my right eye, I guess. Will anyone, can someone please come and save us? But remember, what is at the center of this text? When does relief come from the oppression? When the Spirit rushes their leader, that is when the relief comes. It is the Holy Spirit who brings the power of God for the deliverance of God's people here. You know, in our time, the Holy Spirit is often called, there's books even titled this, the forgotten member of the Trinity right? Sometimes we kind of don't even like, we think a lot about God the Father sitting the Son, and we kind of say, oh, the Holy Spirit's there somewhere, but it's kind of, oh, I don't know. It's kind of like, I'm not really sure how to touch that, right? He's maybe the part of the Godhead that we neglect the most. That's one side. The other side is we've seen God's Spirit, maybe this is why we do neglect it, God's Spirit kind of like overemphasizes. This is the only thing you need. You just need to be Covered with the spirit and move in the spirit and it's all about that, right? It's kind of emotionally driven. So here in our tradition, we tend to see this and say, okay, we're going to go way over here. I don't even want to touch that doctrine. I don't want to touch how that impacts my life. But in this text, we cannot do that. Because I want us to recognize That we have a neglect of the Holy Spirit at times. At the same time, that we need to be a people who are reliant upon the Holy Spirit. Because this is what we see moving throughout Scripture. That in this church, we are called to be a people who are led by God's Spirit. To plead for His guidance, His direction, His wisdom. That we would be a people who rely on His power through the Spirit each and every day. And in your life, individually, individually in your Bible reading, in your little decisions, in your big decisions. And we are to look to the Spirit for guidance and direction that He may illuminate our mind with wisdom. This is what God does. He works amongst His people through the Spirit. And I want to remind you that the very same Spirit, we love to talk about Jesus raising from the dead. Love that. It's great. The resurrection's foundational for the Christian life. But I want to remember, remind you, that that very same Spirit that rose Him from the dead is the same Spirit that lives within you. That we cannot be ashamed of that. That He is there moving inside of you. May we be a people to look that look to the Spirit in all that we do, to be the people of God that He has called us to be. Okay, let's look quickly at the last two points here. First, the defeat of the enemy. This is point three in verse 11. says this, and the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch, and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day, and those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. God is true to his word, is what we see here. He is true to the leader that he has called to lead his people in this point in history, He is true to send his spirit to fill him, to guide God's people. And verse 11 tells us this is exactly what happens. One theologian says this about this verse. Israel cannot afford to miss the point. Salvation came not because Israel had a king, but because the king had Yahweh's spirit. It is not the institution of kingship, but the power of the spirit that brings deliverance that Jabesh is delivered from the terrible danger it faced because the spirit moved. And the power behind the deliverance is the inscrutable working of God's spirit through Saul. Point four, let's go on to the last last thing here, verses 12, uh, 12 through 15. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. It's probably a high point, if not the highest point, in, in Saul's kingship. He's listening to the Lord. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's acting as a godly king to the people. Even in this text says, today, the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. In chapter 10, Saul had been chosen and proclaimed king already, right? It might, it's interesting to say we're going to make him king, right? In Mizpah, he was already proclaimed king, but He was not supported by all people. Now, having proven himself in action, he is the king. He will go and save us. Answering the worthless fellow's question at the end of chapter 10. He is established by all people. The words of Samuel, let us renew the kingdom. It hints at the idea that there is unanimous support for Saul. So this passage, if you think about the big picture, thinks about God's people being oppressed by an enemy and the Spirit rushing upon God's ordained leader to save them, that God himself delivers the people. We Think about that grand narrative of chapter 11 of Samuel. Isn't that the grand narrative of Scripture? From Genesis 3 forward, Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve rebel, they are oppressed by sin and death. It, help, it holds them captive. They are enslaved to sin. But in that very same chapter, they are given hope of deliverance from their oppression, from their slavery to sin. There will be one who will come to deliver them from their oppression, from their slavery. The enemy in chapter 3 of Genesis, Nahash, is conquered by the very act that he thought was bringing his victory. The head of Nahash, the serpent, is crushed by the life, death, and resurrection of God's very Son. And this is true for you and for me today. That Jesus Christ brings deliverance from your slavery to sin, from your oppression to sin and death. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus is in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stands up. Do the scripture reading for the day? and he reads the prophecy in Isaiah that he is fulfilling. This is Jesus speaking, He says this: "The spirit of the Lord is upon me, because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is what Jesus does. He brings ultimate deliverance for our ultimate oppression and slavery to sin. He is the one to, sent to crush the head of the Nahash, the serpent. That in Jesus, you are set free from sin, from the shame you feel each day, from the death that we deserve. And there is power In the name of Jesus, spotless lamb who was slain for us, the call is to turn to him, the one who brings your salvation to your life, because the Lord is our salvation. Let us never forget that. Let us pray. Father, what a great joy it is to hear those words that you save us, that the Lord is our salvation. Father, we have seen this through time and history that you continually are faithful to saving your people. See that ultimately displayed and done in your son, Jesus, that you sent him to live a perfect life, to fulfill the law on our behalf, to die, taking our punishment that we deserve and rising on the third day, beating sin and death once and for all. And Father, we pray here in this moment today, that we would be people who turn to the cross daily. Reminded that we are not enough, that we are sinful, and we need your saving. Father, come to us now. In this moment, we celebrate this table that you have given us. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.